You're listening to TIP. Most of the Latin American countries, I'd say, are driven by commodities, tend to be export countries that are still developing, that haven't reached the same level of wealth you'd see in Europe or Japan or the US. That creates an opportunity in a year like this year where you have a lot of inflation, you have a lot of shortages. Obviously, the invasion of Ukraine has taken a lot of grain and a lot of energy supplies out of the market. And so people are looking for alternative sources of those goods. Obviously, you think about a country like Brazil or Argentina, they're known for growing tons of soybeans and wheat and cattle. On today's episode, I'm joined by Ian Bizek, who is an entrepreneur and writer for Seeking Alpha, currently living in Latin America. Previously, he worked for Carisdale, a New York activist hedge fund. During this episode, Ian discusses what's been driving the recent strength in some of the Latin American equity markets, the opportunities he sees investing in the space, some of the pros and cons of investing in broadly diversified emerging market ETFs versus company-specific ones like the Brazilian ETF, which is paying over a 12% dividend yield, and he talks about how to tell if dividend yields like this are sustainable. Ian also covers why he likes investing in less glamorous industries such as infrastructure, food, beverages, and banks, and he shares some of his long-term hold stock picks in the defensive sector that offer solid dividends. So with that all said, let's jump into the episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I am joined by Ian Bizek. Ian, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I got connected with you because I've been reading your Seeking Alpha articles. I like a lot of the strategies you talk about, which we are going to dive into today. But can you start off by just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I studied economics, Colorado State University, graduated in 2010, and then went into finance from there. Had a job with a hedge fund in New York for three years kind of an activist sort of hedge fund. We would investigate companies and then publish our findings, good or bad. And built on my writing skills from doing that kind of professionally for the fund. After I'd saved up some money, I decided that I didn't really want to live in New York forever. So took off traveling for a year, ran into who is now my wife, and ended up uh, getting stuck here in South America ever since then. Is Latin America also part of your investment strategy as well? Yeah, I mean, the largest portion of my assets are in in the United States, but then Latin America is my next largest holding as a region outside of the United States. I think there's a lot of opportunities here. and People haven't really talked much about Latin America for the last 10 years. Kind of everything has been down in the dumps here. And so a lot of investors have left, a lot of money has moved out. But I think that's created an opportunity for people that are rediscovering the region now. As we talked about, the returns have really started to pick up here over the last year. And so I think there's interesting opportunities today. I'm really curious to learn more about those opportunities that you see investing in this space because I was looking at Finimize, which is something that I just like to use to look at a worldview of different returns in markets and sectors. And it, it's really interesting how Latin America, a lot of countries in Latin America have been the only ones that have performed really good over the past year. Can you just talk a little bit about kind of the opportunities that you see investing in this space and what's been driving those really good returns over the past year? Most of the Latin American countries, I'd say, are driven by commodities, tend to be export countries that are still developing, that haven't reached the same level of wealth you'd see in Europe or Japan or the U.S. That creates an opportunity in a year like this year where you have a lot of inflation, you have a lot of shortages. Obviously, the invasion of Ukraine has taken a lot of grain and a lot of uh, energy supplies out of the market. And so people are looking for alternative sources of those goods. Obviously, you think about a country like Brazil or Argentina, they're known for growing tons of uh, soybeans and wheat and cattle. uh, If you need energy, you've got a lot of oil producers down here. You've got some of the world's largest copper mines, which are vital for the green energy transition. There's a lot of raw materials here. And Uh, Now that the prices for commodities have gone up and everyone's worried about inflation, South America is looking like a much more hospitable place to get resources from than Russia. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Argentina is one in particular that has done exceptionally well over the past year and even more so in the past three months, along with now Mexico, Peru, Cayman Islands and Brazil are also doing really well. So is it all that commodity story then for all of those then? Largely. The one exception would be two exceptions. Cayman Islands is kind of holding companies because it's kind of a banking paradise. So I'm not sure which companies those would be in particular. But the big exception would be Mexico, because that's more of a manufacturing play. You have a ton of integration with the U.S., I believe. What, 30 years ago now, you, you had NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which opens the Mexican market to Canada and the U.S. Any company can locate in Mexico and produce, sell to the U.S. or Canada without any tariffs or taxes. And so over the past 30 years, we've seen a ton of automakers aircraft, health, uh, medical equipment, all that sort of stuff set up shop uh, along the Mexican border. And that had been growing naturally, but now with all the problems we've had with China and shipping over the past year or two, people couldn't get goods from China and a lot of companies are reconsidering how much exposure they want to China. It's looking a lot safer to manufacture in Tijuana instead of in Shanghai. It's just been off the charts uh, activity in Mexico this year, I believe. Exports are up 50% versus last year. That's just been a tremendous tailwind for Mexico. But that's largely just Mexico. If you look at South America, you don't have the same links. You don't have highways or railroads that go to the U.S. Uh, it's a lot more complicated to uh, manufacture in Brazil, say, than in Mexico. So I am wondering, what is kind of... So these countries have done so well over the past year, but... What's kind of your outlook going forward? I read the most recent IMF World Economic Forecast, which predicts that Latin America's rebound is expected to kind of slow going forward. And they expected their growth to be 2.5% in 2022 and 2023. So that's considerably slower than I think it was 6.8%. That was 2021. And so I guess I'm just wondering what you think will happen maybe to the markets going forward if economic growth is kind of expected to slow down a bit. I think it's going to be a challenge for the region, particularly the higher interest rates that we've seen in the US. That's a global phenomenon. All of the countries down here having to raise their interest rates as well for the same factors. And so that's creating the same pressures on housing and construction and all. Definitely, there will be a slowdown, but we're slowing down from some pretty incredible numbers. I believe the last uh, GDP print for here in Colombia, where I live, was plus 13% year over year. Growth wasn't going to keep happening at that rate regardless, but I think there's definitely enough going on that we can avoid recession here. Fingers crossed, as long as like the rest of the world doesn't totally crash. I think Latin America will be advantaged because energy, food, kind of the stuff that we produce the most of is really in short supply right now. Yeah, I think we face the same same risks as other people, but we're better suited to, to handle the current set of risks we have than, than a lot of the rest of the world. What's the inflation picture like there? It's so bad in North America and other developing economies. So is it just as bad there? I think Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Chile are all around 7 to 10% now. Pretty similar to what you'd see in the US or Europe. Brazil's a little bit higher, and then Argentina's kind of its own story. Their inflation, I think, is closer to 70%, just totally out of control. But there, the government has decided it's a good idea to print money and pay a lot of the government's bills, like they pay people's salaries and pensions directly from, from printed money. It's uh, a big part of the reason why Argentina has hyperinflation. The rest of Latin America, it's not been that bad, at least so far. Wow. Yeah. So that seems like that could be a big risk to the markets going forward. But then on the other hand, inflation is largely driven by commodity prices too. So that maybe benefits the companies there because they're exporters and producers of much of that. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure we'll get into this more, but I'd say probably the biggest problem in Latin America is the structural distribution of income. So much income goes to the, the top of society. There's not very good systems in place that uh, so that money gets from like a state-owned oil company like uh, Petrobras in Brazil or Eco Petrol in Colombia. Like, they're making more money than ever, but it's a question: How will those funds be distributed? How will will people get better healthcare and better education, lower crime as a result of this money, or is it just going to to take advantage to help the top ten percent of society? I think that's what you've seen with these elections, recently, like Brazil, Colombia. A lot of these countries have elected more uh, socialist leaders because people are saying that the money just never gets to us. 
there's more more dollars coming in thanks to the higher commodity prices, but it's a challenge to see whether that will benefit the average uh, person in these countries. Yeah. So how do you think about the risks investing in these emerging markets? They typically have greater additional risks for a U.S. investor because of political uncertainties and a lot of those things that you just mentioned. How do you think about that, factoring that into your analysis and your allocation of capital? I think the biggest thing I would tell people is just to, that there's a wider range of outcomes that you can have. Like volatility is going to be higher, both to the upside and the downside. If normally you would take, say, a 10% position in something, maybe make it a 5% position because, you know, like if your thesis is right, you're still going to make a lot of money with a 5% position. And if you're wrong, it won't be as hard to recover from. 2003 to 2008, when we had kind of the China super cycle and all the commodity countries did very well, like most of the U.S. listed Latin American stocks went up threefold, fivefold. The largest bank here in Colombia went up 30x. It was available for $2 in 2003, and it ended at $60 in 2010. Uh, so just you don't need a huge position in that sort of stock. Just owning a little bit and holding tight through the volatility has uh, done very well for people historically. Do you think of these investments as long-term? Because typically on this show, we like to talk about buy and hold strategies. Or are you trading these more tactical yeah, I think of it through a cycle lens. Like these countries tend to go in and out of favor. Like uh, 2000, the 1990s were good for Latin America. 1999 to 2001, everything crashed. Several of our largest countries went bankrupt here. 2003 to 2008 was just golden age, like the best you could imagine. And then since 2011, everything's gone way down. So you have kind of this 10-year cycle where things go up and down. And so I would say I'll be looking to sell my Latin American investments at the top of the next cycle. But realistically, that might not be until 2030. <laughs> Still pretty long term. I want to view it as something just to put in a safe deposit box and pass on to your grandkids. I think you should, should monitor Latin American investments, but you don't need to be trading in and out every quarter. Definitely not. Okay, so that's interesting. How do you think about assessing when it's at the top of the cycle? Is it linked to the commodity cycle then? Yeah, there's a commodity cycle, but I'd say more generally, you can just look at sentiment. How much are people talking about Latin America? How well have the currencies done? You had tremendous amounts of money flowing into Latin America through up till 2011. You had uh, Colombians and Brazilians and all buying tons of luxury properties in Miami, and there, were <laughs> there was just so much money coming out of South America. It was, if you were looking around at all, it was clear that they were doing very well, and now no one is talking about these regions. A bunch of the ETFs, uh, the, one of the Argentina ETFs and one of the Colombia ETFs just shut down this summer, which is usually what you see near the bottom when there's no more investor demand. I think when you see the opposite of that, when you see people going on CNBC and saying, this is the Mexican stock you need to buy, this is why Brazil's going higher and they're already up a bunch, that's when you start saying, oh, I need to be more cautious. What drove that ETF shutting down? Just, I think that they were very small. Like There used to be two Colombian ETFs. There was uh, Vanek, I forget who was the sponsor of the other one. Both of them had like under $100 million of assets under management. And so I think the sponsors just decided there's only room for one ETF for this country because there's so little demand. And same for Argentina. And I would note they shut the Argentina ETF, the second one down in June. And then since June, Argentine stocks are up like 50%. It's quite, <laughs> quite ironic. I think typically we think of ETFs as the safer vehicles, obviously, because they're more diversified. What happens to an investor's funds when it shuts down? So they sell off all the underlying stocks or bonds or whatever assets are in the ETF, and then they will redeem it. They finish their accounting. It's usually like a one or two week delay while they do all the back office stuff. And then they'll send everyone a cash dividend equal to the last, uh, called the net asset value, NAV, uh, reported of the ETF. Investors don't lose anything if an ETF shuts down. It's just an inconvenience because you have to reinvest the money and it might cause tax consequences or something. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. 
Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So I was looking at some of the largest ETFs in Latin America and There's one in Brazil, ticker EWZ, Mexico, EWW, uh, Chile, ECH, Peru, EPU, and Colombia, GXG. I'm just wondering, how should investors think about analyzing these ETFs? Do you have any thoughts on what do you think is the best way they can get exposure to certain economies? I own a small bit of the Chilean ETF, which is ECH. Other than that, I mostly own individual country uh, stocks within the individual countries. I only pick the Chilean ETF because they have so few companies that are quoted in New York that it was it was hard to get exposure to the country without buying the ETF. I'd say in general, looking at the ETFs, just uh, take a look at their holdings, see if the sectors make sense. In some countries, you'll find that they're quite diversified. Like the Mexico ETF is pretty good. It has consumer staples, it has transportation. As telecom, as a variety of things. But then you look at other countries and the ETF will be like 40% banks. And so maybe that's not such a, unless you really like banks, I would uh, steer away. Like I tell people to be careful with the Colombian ETF, for example, because I haven't looked recently, but at one point the top two holdings were 40% of the fund. And so it's like, do you really want to pay a, a management fee? And <laughs> you could just buy those two stocks and get almost half the ETF yourself. Look, uh, how liquid are they? Like, is is there a reasonable amount of assets and trading spread? And are they giving you a good diversity of stocks or just kind of buying a couple of names? I think like the Argentina ETF as well. At one point, it was like 25% Mercado Libre stocks. So if you just want to own the, the e-commerce there, just buy Mercado Libre outright. It's by far the largest holding in the ETF anyway. I find it's so hard to get emerging markets exposure because you could go very broad with something like IEMG or VWO. But right now, they're 
well, they've always been super heavy China and right now China's doing awful, but then Latin America only makes up like less than 10% of that ETF. So if you want to hone in on certain countries, then there are more risks with buying one of those. And so that's good that you mentioned all of those things that we can look for. I found it super interesting though. I was looking at the Brazil ETF and the dividend yield is so high. It's 12.32%. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, why it's so high and why that's a bit deceiving. Because I think some people could look at that at face value and think that's incredible, but maybe shed some light on why that's not the case. Sure. Yes. Brazil is a very commodity heavy country in particular in What's in their ETF? I believe three or four of the top holdings are related to oil and gas mining or heavy industry, like Petrobras, which is the state-run oil company. It's the largest holding in Vale, which is iron ore. Kind of these things are all making windfall profits right now because they've kind of directly replaced production from Russia with production from Brazil. Like Petrobras, for example, pays out the majority of its income as dividends every year. And so in a down year, like when oil was $30 a barrel or whatever it was a few years ago, Petrobras was paying no dividend at all because it wasn't making a profit. But now it's making a ridiculous profit. And so I believe Petrobras has a 35% dividend at the moment because they just pay all their profits out to shareholders. And so if your ETF is 10% in Petrobras and Petrobras is paying a 35% dividend, that gives shareholders... The, the appearance of a huge yield. But the problem is if you're just speculating on what the oil price will be next year. Maybe oil will be up again and Petrobras will pay you another huge dividend next year. Maybe oil will go down and they will cut their dividend dramatically. There's just no guarantee that these the dividends from oil and gas and iron and steel and all will last. But there's certainly a, a people that have held Brazil for many years are now being richly rewarded for with dividends for having faith during the lean years. But I couldn't forecast where dividends will be for Brazil in two or three years. So I bet on where commodity prices will be. I dug a little bit deeper into that ETF just to see the historical dividend yield. And just two years prior, it was below 2%. And then it all of a sudden spiked to 9% in 2021. Now it's over 12. So it's clearly extremely volatile. It's not to suggest that would persist. Do they have to give any type of forward guidance, though? How does that work? I would have to look at the ETF specifically. Some ETFs pay quarterly dividends and some pay uh, kind of an annual or semi-annual. So it would depend on their payment schedule. But usually the ETF will collect all the dividends it receives from companies over a given period of time, say six months, and then it will pay those all out at a lump sum. If you were tracking the amount of underlying dividends that each company, the index had paid, you could forecast what the yields would be. But aside from that, I mean, the ETF itself won't give you guidance. They just say after the fact, here's how much dividends we received over X period of time. And so here's your payment. One other thing I'd note on Brazil specifically, since we're talking about it, they're one of the few countries that charges no dividend tax to foreigners. Most countries will charge you if you're not a resident of their country, but that makes Brazil's dividends more attractive compared to uh, most of Europe charges, I believe, 20% on Americans, for example. I don't know the tax treaties with Canada or Australia or other countries, but like, as an American citizen, you pay a tax to own almost any country, except Brazil is one of the few that's tax-free. Yeah, I think that's something that can be overlooked by investors, the amount that foreign dividends are taxed, because we don't directly see it. So I'm glad you pointed that out. I think that's something we need to keep in mind if we're investing in a foreign stock, especially for their attractive dividend. Yeah, it's definitely when you're thinking about how to how you want to allocate money to emerging markets or really anywhere outside of your home country more generally, definitely consider the, the tax consequences because I think it's something a lot of people don't really look at until after they've gotten their bill and then be like, oh, I wish I'd known that sooner better to, to take that into account in advance. And this is a good time to do tax planning now because presumably most people won't have too much in the way of capital gains this year. So this is a good time to optimize portfolios going forward and hopefully for more, more profits in 2023 than this year. Exactly. And I think the last thing I just want to wrap up on investing in emerging markets in Latin America is it has been attractive over the past year, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's right for everyone. I just kind of wanted to cover it with you because it has been so interesting why it's been doing so well. But I think it's also important to highlight just, yeah, what are the risks of investing in this space that our listeners should be aware of and how they can kind of think this through if they should add it to their portfolio? 
Yeah, I think political risk is certainly the one that gets the most headlines. Uh, probably every year or two, some new leftist or socialist will get elected in at least one American country, and you'll see people just knee-jerk sell off their exposure to that country. Usually that's been a mistake. Just over the past three years, Peru, Chile, Mexico, uh, now Colombia and Brazil have all elected leftists, and of those, like only Colombia has meaningfully deteriorated from an investment standpoint. Like Peru stock market dropped 20% on their election last year, and now it recovered all those losses and has got on to new highs. Same with Chile, like the foreign media was saying it was going to turn into a communist country, and now their president has become a centrist. And so this, people tend to overreact. Um, but I think investors would come into it being aware that these countries have large structural problems in terms of governance. Obviously, people talk about corruption, but I would say from living here, the, the bigger issue is just the schools and healthcare is not a very high quality, or at least not for the lower class. And as long as that's the case, people feel that the capitalist society isn't working for them. And so you're going to consistently see populist movements against that. I think investors need to be aware of that. And capitalists, I support free markets and business, but the system is not working for everyone here. And so people should keep expecting to see more like the election of Lula in Brazil. It's totally understandable why people would do that given their circumstances. Other risks, uh, yeah, inflation's a big problem. I think you saw like the Arab Spring 10 years ago, uh, where people were protesting over food prices. We may see something similar. So far, there haven't been huge protests in Latin America in particular, but I can tell you the price of groceries where I live is up 20 or 30%. And I think the government increased wages for its state employees like 8%. So do the math. That doesn't really work if this keeps up. So that will create more insecurity. Certainly, it'll hit sales for more discretionary things. Like It'll be a headwind for travel or tourism, restaurants, kind of the stuff that people spend with their, their leftover money. Let's see, any other risks? Yeah, just some of the economies aren't that diversified. So if commodities keep going well, things will be good. But if commodities drop, a lot of countries will have problems. Mexico is kind of the one that's the most stable because it's tied to the U.S. But aside from that, there's a lot of commodity exposure. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's kind of the same issue I actually have in Canada too. It's stock market is mostly banks and energy. And so I have to look to the world to get more diversification for my portfolio. But I want to talk to you about investing in infrastructure now. You write about this. You mentioned that you like investing in this space. Can you kind of talk about why and the opportunities that you see in infrastructure? Yeah, I think it's a great uh, asset class because you get these very long-term cash flows, very long-term dividends generally from things that you can own. Either you own outright or you have leases that last 30, 40, 50 years and just provide steady cash flow. In a zero interest rate world, I don't think people cared as much about these sorts of assets. People are focused more on things that would grow quickly, but now that interest rates have gone up and people need to consider how much profit and how much dividend is being generated today, these kind of toll road kind of assets are much more attractive. And there are literal toll roads, I believe, for your, what is it, the 405 what is in Toronto, one of the highways there is publicly traded. Here in Latin America, the airports, a lot of the airports are publicly available overseas. You can invest in seaports. Yeah, there's a lot of different assets, particularly in an emerging market where you still have a sharply rising population and more consumer spending. Just people want to travel more. So naturally, your, your revenues for owning a toll road or airport or whatever are going to go up pretty considerably. But like one of the infrastructure investments I own, which is a Mexican airport company, their primary asset is the airport in Guadalajara, which is the country's second largest city. A decade ago, I believe it had 5 million passengers per year. I don't remember offhand, but I believe it was 5 million. Now it's up to 16 million despite the pandemic, and they're expanding it with their own money, not with the government's money, so that it will serve 40 million people over the next 20 years. And so that will be an eightfold growth in traffic while they've owned it. And then they pay 100% of their free cash flow to shareholders as dividends. And so assuming flat profit margins, the dividend will go up eightfold as well. And so people might look at it and say, oh, the starting dividend's only 4%. But you look at the future, it's like this thing's going to be much larger because you've got an airport for a city of like 7 million people that 20 years ago hardly any Mexicans flew. And going forward, presumably Mexicans will fly nearly as much as, as Americans do. And so it's... Kind of a tremendous opportunity to own the equivalent of the Chicago or Vancouver airport in terms of like the same size city for the U.S. or Canada and to, to own that asset in Mexico. Is, I think very interesting benefits from demographics. Wow. So what was the ticker for that one again? It's called Pacifico Airports. Uh, it's traded on the New York Stock Exchange's ticker PAC. 
How can investors think about assessing that macro pictures of investing in infrastructure? What would they be looking for? It's population trends or what's the driving factors behind how well that does? Population in general and then what local industries, kind of what's powering the local economy. I was talking to the CFO of Pacifico and just asking kind of what's, because I'd seen traffic had gone up dramatically and I was asking what's going on. And he said it's all the logistics because uh, people couldn't ship anything out of China for the last two years. And so they were looking for any other alternative. And so they started flying stuff in like DHL and FedEx directly to the airport and then sending it into the U.S. and into Canada from railroad because the airport's directly tied to the railroad. Uh, so it's like the, the logistics industry is booming there. And then that creates all sorts of new jobs. People move to be near the airport so they can can operate the warehouses and all, like Amazon's building a big facility there. And so you get kind of these network effects as people need to create new supply chains that don't involve China. So I'd just be looking to see what's going on, what can what can drive new traffic growth, this reshoring trend with people wanting to build closer to end consumers in the US and Canada is going to be a tremendous boom for Mexico. And for North American logistics will do very well as well, like your railroads in Canada and the US, probably strong assets as well. Yeah, that's true. That's kind of what I want to talk to you about, those boring assets that really no one likes to talk about or or own. You mentioned that you're kind of a fan of investing in those less glamorous industries, food, beverage, banks, typically defensive or consumer staple sectors, I guess. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Any opportunities or investments that you see as particularly interesting right now? And in kind of that long-term hold perspective. Yeah, I think it goes very well with what you were saying earlier, things that you want to buy and not have to worry about, just buy it and know that you'll get steadily increasing earnings and dividends and, and share price over the years. I think the consumer staples, so that's food, beverage, uh, cleaning products, that sort of stuff, has proven to be very resilient. Just people trust brands. I understand sometimes nowadays people might trade down to save money, particularly with inflation, but Still, in general, people generally want to buy something they know and trust. Something like Coca-Cola, there's other sodas, but there's only one that tastes like that. Sales tend to be very strong. I think the place where people get into trouble with staples, kind of defensive companies, is just make sure the brands are strong. You don't want to own something that looks like the cheapest one if the brand isn't strong. Like It needs to be something that really connects with consumers. I think the growth opportunities, particularly in things where you've got either a growing category, like I'd point out spices and hot sauces is the fastest growing food trend that's been growing at 7% a year over the past decade. So a company like McCormick is virtually a monopoly on those sales in the US. That company has done very well. I believe it's tripled earnings over the past decade. So people might think of that as a, a boring company. It just sells black pepper or whatever, but it's actually a very good business. Companies that take advantage of demographics. One of my holdings, Hormel Foods, ticker HRL, is the largest kind of importer of Mexican products to distribute in the in the U.S. So guacamole, hot sauces, variety of things. That's done very well because they partnered with a Mexican company, so they sell all these brands that Mexican Americans grew up with or that their grandma always served. So there's about 50 million Spanish speakers in the U.S. now, and so a company that has taken a lead in distributing those sorts of products doing very well. And I like the staples companies in emerging markets. I think that's a good place to be because you've got very quickly growing populations that have more spending power. So something like Ambev, uh, which is the division of Budweiser and Heiser Bush, excuse me, for South America, uh, kind of the Brazilian beer monopoly. I think your sales are going to go up a lot there. Kind of, Latin America's been very slow to reopen from COVID, but hoping the World Cup gets some stuff going on that front. Yeah, that'd be that'd be kind of my overview for staples. Just look for things where strong brands and where there's something that um, catalysts that can drive growth that other people might not be seeing. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research as well as the ability to create customized charts. 
Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. So are you mostly getting exposure to these companies then by picking certain companies or do you hold any ETFs or anything as well? Yeah, in this space, I just own individual companies. I think the ETFs are probably fine. I just I have expertise in this area and I feel I can pick the individual companies out pretty well. And I think the main staples ETF is like 15% Procter & Gamble and another 15% Costco, the last I checked. Once again, it's very top-heavy in a couple of companies that are they're fine. I think they're good companies, but uh, maybe if you want to be more tactical, maybe there's other options too. And then on dividend investing, so you're also a fan of that, is it? Mostly through kind of the staples and the emerging markets that we already talked about, or are these other companies that you kind of want to share? The majority of dividends come from those defensive companies that can consistently increase their earnings and dividends every year. I like looking through the dividend aristocrats, which are the list of the companies that have increased their dividends for at least 25 years in a row. So that means you got through the 9-11 attacks, the 2008 financial crisis, COVID, and I got it through all that and we're able to pay a rising dividend every year. That means the company is generally strong enough to make it through a garden variety recession. A lot of the companies that I would own for other reasons, like because they're a strong defensive company, but not also happen to be dividend aristocrats. But I like looking through there, particularly I like looking through the 52-week lows there to see kind of what are these very successful companies that are currently going through a hard time, because that might be a bargain opportunity. And for ETFs of the dividend companies, I believe, what, like the utilities have sold off a lot interesting, so that might be interesting to some people. Yeah, and one other thing I'd point out, one thing I like about these defensive companies and kind of the companies that have a long dividend track record is if they get into trouble or they underperform, they tend to not fade away overnight. I'd point out from my own personal experience, my dad was an employee for IBM for virtually all of his professional life. And so the, my parents bought a bunch of IBM stock when he got hired there in 1984, 1985, I believe. And obviously, like, if you've looked at IBM over the last 10 years, like, it's a dog. Like, it's the company's outdated. It missed the cloud evolution. Like, people love to make fun of this company. 
Uh, yeah, I think my parents bought it for like $15 a share and now it's paying $7 a share of annual dividends. So it's like they're getting back almost half their initial investment every year just from the dividend. So it's like, say what say what you will, like, the, oh, IBM's old fashioned or whatever. But some of these companies continue to produce tremendous amounts of cash flow even after people write them off. It's tempting to look at like your NVIDIAs and AMDs and whatever, and so you need to own the latest technology companies. And certainly there's great trades and great opportunities there, but don't cut out some of these older companies that have very strong profits, even if they're not the newest kid on the block. Yeah, so dividend strategies can be quite attractive in this environment. If investors kind of are wanting more positions and things that offer those maybe stable cash flows, what kind of due diligence for dividend companies? What do they have to look for to make sure that dividend is actually sustainable over time? I think probably the biggest area where people get into trouble with dividend investing is trying to buy something with a very high yield today and not asking enough questions about where that yield comes from. Like you were saying, like how is this Brazilian ETF yielding 12%? It's uh, probably not sustainable when you look at it closer. So I'd look at a company's earnings track record because ultimately earnings are what drives how much dividends a company can pay. In particular, look how they did during crises. So go back and look, how did this company do in 2008? How badly was it impacted during the 2020 COVID decline? Look at the company's debt. Like If the company has no debt or very little debt, it will have more resilience regardless of what its operations do. Whereas if it has a bunch of debt, then it has very little margin for error. You either want a very stable company or a company with very little debt, or ideally both would be what I would say. Yeah. And then are you looking for a certain metric of cash flow to debt or just it's relative to kind of the industry and company? I don't have any hard and fast rules, but that's probably because I've been investing for 14 years now. But yeah, for certainly if I were starting out, I would use metrics like a payout ratio, which is just your dividend compared to your earnings. Avoid companies below a certain credit rating. Set some parameters. And then over time, it's kind of you have a few years of experience and you've seen worked and where you made mistakes, then you can refine those parameters. But I would definitely start out with a checklist. Otherwise, you're going to end up owning some, some dodgy stuff that pays a 10% yield today and then pays a much smaller yield tomorrow. The last topic I want to talk with you today is currency risk. Kind of what this means and how it impacts companies' profits. The US dollar has risen sharply this year compared to many other countries. I kind of just wanted to dive deeper into how currencies impact corporate earnings since the dollar has hurt a lot of US companies' earnings and led many to cut their guidance this year. Can you talk a little bit about this and how it impacts corporate earnings? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's the U.S. multinationals in particular are facing a big obstacle going forward because they will sell a product generally for X number of dollars and then they expect to get that amount for, uh, when they translate it back from local currency. Like To use an example, Apple traditionally would sell iPhones and Macs and whatever in Europe for significantly lower prices than their local currency there because the euro and the pound were worth a lot more than the dollar. And so like if an iPhone cost $1,000 in the US, it would cost like 800 euros. But now that the euro and the dollar are worth the same, Apple's only getting back $800 when they sell that iPhone. So that's a what 25, 20% hit to their top line. And so either they have to raise prices dramatically in those other countries, which might be hard because they're already experiencing economic uh, troubles as it is, or they have to accept a much lower profit margin. So these, yeah, particularly the technology companies like Microsoft that sells its windows on every corner of the planet or Google where they're getting money off every search worldwide, they're seeing a big hit to their, their ad dollars. On the flip side, it's an advantage for foreign companies because they have cheaper costs of production because their local costs have gone down a lot. And so a country like Japan, I think, is advantaged. Uh, advantaged. I think you'll see their manufacturing uh, pick up a lot. So they have very high-skilled labor, they're very advanced technology, and now that the yen has dropped, I believe, 30% this year, that gives them a tremendous advantage. Like if you're a Toyota or Honda or Sony or one of those guys, uh, you should have a very advantageous position competing against American firms going forward. I read an article that said big tech companies generate almost 60% of their sales outside of the US. So like you mentioned, that seems like a major headwind then just given the economic backdrop where it doesn't seem like there's a lot of extra disposable income to go around where they can just up their prices. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on big tech? Do you see this as big risk to their valuation? Yeah, I think it's a big uncertainty for them. 
there's kind of multiple factors that play there because the big tech stocks and in my view gotten overvalued last year because people were kind of extrapolating all of the spending we were doing in 2021 to buy computers to study at home and uh, upgrading all of our technology and all that. There's people are kind of extrapolating a straight line that earnings were just going to keep growing and growing and growing. And then kind of this year is like, oh, no, actually everything reopened and now we don't need another computer and we don't need another phone and whatever. I think you're naturally seeing earnings just re- decline to a more normal level for big tech. But then you're throwing this additional headwind that, oh, now when I sell an iPhone overseas, it's worth 10 or 15% less than it was last year. I think it's a challenge. The NASDAQ, the U.S. technology index, went up every single year between 2009 and 2021, which is quite unprecedented. And people just kind of had this idea that these stocks were safe from any downturn, like regardless of what happened. And so I think they were too popular with folks. And now it'll take a couple of years to kind of reboot and reset expectations there. But it's creating opportunities like energy this year has been tremendous. Industrials have done well. The banks have done pretty well. So people are kind of rediscovering some of the other parts of the stock market that have been out of favor the last couple of years. Uh, One other point I'd make on currency before we move on. I personally am building a house uh, here in Colombia. That's why I'm kind of recording out of a storage room at the moment. So apologies for that. But since I started building, like since I bought the lot like six months ago, the currency here is devalued by 25%. And so it's just, it creates a great deal of uncertainty. I have no idea what the end budget for my property is going to be because every week the currency is moving 5%. So a lot of people have just stopped like uh, the construction activity. When I was starting, it was hard to find people to work on the site. And like it was like weeks to find a plumber or whatever. And now there's no problem finding labor because people have just stopped building. They're like, we don't know where, where the exchange rate is going to be. We don't know where inflation is. And so it just paralyzes the economy here because people rely on, on savings and dollars and yet they're spending in pesos to do anything. And it's, it's a major headache. There's a major drag on a lot of economies just because people are kind of deer in the headlights right now. It's, we don't know what anything costs. We don't know what our incomes will be next. It's, it's a mess. Wow. Yeah. It has so many real life implications beyond investing. And then you kind of see how that relates back to company decisions and why things are going to be at such a standstill because companies can't make decisions when there's so many unknown factors. I am wondering on banks as well. We didn't touch on that yet. And banks can typically do well in rising interest rate environments because they can increase their net interest that they receive, but then also what is kind of the limit where that works against them? And where do you kind of see banks going in this rising interest rate environment? I can speak more to the US banks since that's what I'm familiar with and Latin American banks. I don't really know as much about the Canadian banks. So your housing market is something that's beyond my pay grade. But for the US banks, they were very risky prior to 2008 because there were very few limits on the sorts of loans they could make. You had undocumented Guatemalan migrants getting $700,000 loans, which was obviously going to lead to trouble. Not to pick on Guatemalan migrants, but that just spoke to the, to the level of loan due diligence that was occurring in the US in 2007. So you had a major bust there, but I think a lot of investors are fighting the last war in terms of the, it's like, oh, banks go down whenever the economy goes down, big short, we're all going to make money betting against banks. But the regulations were changed dramatically in the U.S. They're holding three times as much capital as they were in 2007. There's very few loans above 80% of the value of a property now. So the house has to drop 20% in value in the U.S. before banks start facing any exposure to losses. Yeah, so I think there's a lot more room for, like, the economy can roll over quite a bit before the banks start taking losses. And meanwhile, the interest rates are just phenomenal. Like, banks are making real money now um, from lending. You look at the results for JP Morgan, Goldman, a lot of these big banks, they're up like 75, 100 basis points of net interest margin over the last year, which is the biggest move we've seen in 20 years for the sector in terms of improved profitability. So I think people are overplaying the risk and under not realizing the level of reward on this. Are there a couple banks that you think could be more resilient than others if we get into a recession next year and things get worse? Because that's the big question right now. Are things going to get worse? What banks in your mind would be resilient if that happened? This is one where I would be more comfortable. I'd be very comfortable using an ETF here. I think an ETF of the large US banks would be fun. And I particularly like the regional banks. Unlike Canada, the U.S. banking system is not very consolidated. We still have uh, several thousand banks in operation and I believe 500 or so that are quoted on our stock markets. And the regional banks have more exposure to rising interest rates because they tend to just be banks that make mortgages. They don't really do any of the exotic derivatives, MBO, whatever, the black box stuff. 
So they're a very good way to get exposure to the American economy, which I think is the best of a of a bad bunch right now. Like all the problems we're seeing in China and all this has generally been good for the U.S. I like the regional banks in particular, but there's no need to pick individual stocks. So you can just buy the ETF. I think it's fine. Strong dividend, not much in the way of credit quality concerns, and a ton of juice for higher interest rates. One thing I was talking about with a previous guest is that the quantitative tightening will actually make banks' risk profiles look worse. That is something maybe to consider with the banks that their balance sheets are just going to get riskier as quantitative tightening is happening. But I guess, is there anything else that you think investors should know about in this sector? Yeah, specifically for your banks, I think it's interesting, like TD has the large US business, which would probably be advantageous. I'm more bullish on the US than Canada in the short term. And also Scotiabank has its huge uh, footprint here in South America. So I think that's kind of a, a backdoor way. If you want some exposure to the Latin American renaissance that I think is happening now, but you don't want to put actual capital into an individual South American bank, Scotia gets you a, a large footprint here in the the returns on equity that they earn on their, their Latin American division is much higher than the Canadian side. If you see some economic growth here, I think that could be could help Scotia stand out over the, its peers in Canada. Well, that is all I have for today. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining me. Before we wrap it up, can you let the audience know where they can connect with you and learn more about your work? Sure. So I'm most active on Twitter. Can join me there, almost 9,000 followers. I R B E Z E K, B E Z E K. And then I'm on Seeking Alpha. I've written more than 1,000 articles there. And I have a premium newsletter either on Seeking Alpha or on Substack. It's the same newsletter, but if you prefer Seeking Alpha or Substack, it's hosted on both called the Insider Corner. So, a weekly 10, 15 page newsletter, all my new ideas, and I'll answer your comments, questions, concerns there. Awesome. Or just Twitter. I'm, all, I'm on Twitter all the time. Thank you so much, Ian. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a great discussion. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.